Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Today we are joined by Pastor James Lindbergh. James is a pastor in suburban Nebraska, where he lives with his wife and three children, and pastors a local Lutheran congregation. Pastor Lindbergh joins us to discuss his experience as a participant in the John Hopkins and New York University study, Psilocybin for Religious Leaders Study, in 2018. I believe the study is now complete and is destined to be published in the near future. I look forward to reading the study and discussing it in a future episode of the podcast. A few comments about the quality of this episode. This being the first podcast interview, I made it a point to perform multiple quality checks on my sound equipment and audio software to ensure that everything was working properly. However, at the time of the interview, I failed to start recording using my preferred method and only recorded using a lower quality backup method. The quality of the recording was positively terrible, but with lots of effort, I have managed to clean it up and make it tolerable. Also, approximately 20 to 30 minutes into the interview, my equipment began to make a loud buzzing noise and it took me about three minutes to resolve the issue. I was able to improve this but was unable to eliminate it completely. Lessons were definitely learned, and it is my plan to bring you higher quality audio in the future. As for the length of the episode, we definitely went far longer than I expected, and I must admit, at some point in the discussion I lost track of time. Honestly, I had many more questions for James, and could have easily talked for another hour. In the future, I will attempt to limit conversations to about an hour and possibly divide conversations that are necessarily longer into multiple episodes. Well, without further delay, please enjoy our interview with Pastor James Lindbergh. Pastor James Lindbergh, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Good to talk with you, Frank. Well, James, I'm very interested to hear about your participation in the John Hopkins and New York University study. But if you don't mind, if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about your your life, your Christian faith, um, and how your journey led you to become a Lutheran pastor. Well, I um, grew up in the Lutheran church. Uh, my parents uh, had me baptized uh, a few months after I was born. My dad was kind of a hardcore Lutheran. Um, grace was very big to him, and, um, and if you're going to talk about grace, not that you can with others, you should talk about grace, but he went to, he had a, he had a, a, a pastor who was a Lutheran pastor, he was really a mentor to him, and so in a, in a time in his life it was important, so he became Lutheran, and I was baptized Lutheran and grew up in the Lutheran church for most of my life. Um, you know, my dad and, uh, kind of experimented with other, um, other denominations, but kind of always went back to Lutheranism and Lutheranism out of his, uh, was his home. So, um, so I had that experience with traditional, growing up traditionally Lutheran in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. 
Um, and then my my parents were also part of the charismatic Christian movement um, in the in the seventies. Uh, um, kind of petered out, I think, in the eighties. Well, it kind of shifted and changed, but uh, really in the early 70s is when they were part of the charismatic Christian movement um, in California, born and raised in California. Um, and so then I have some memories of prayer meetings and people speaking in tongues and laying hands on for praying and, you know, some things that are traditionally associated with Pentecostal or charismatic churches. And so that was also part of my calling up was seeing, um, seeing people practice faith, speaking in tongues, you know, practicing their preaching faith in very cool, charismatic ways. Um, but, uh, again, Lutheran throughout, um, throughout my life, um, I love the church. The church, in a certain sense, is kind of a parent to me. Um, I loved, um, not only the people of the church, I loved, um, the doctrines of the church. I love thinking about the church. I love, you know, what the, you know, what the church thought about a specific issue, the theology of the church. Um, that was really what was my faith. My faith was held together by my love for the church and my love for the doctrines of the faith. I probably didn't really have much when it came to the, to the experiential side of the faith. There's many different ways to understand the faith. For some people, it's very deep on the experiential side of the faith. They experience God, they experience Jesus, they experience the Christ. That wasn't my, that wasn't my experience. That wasn't, when it came to how my connection to the faith, it wasn't necessarily to the experiential, experiential emotional sides of the faith. And Lutherans are not known for being tremendously emotional in their faith anyway, like other, you know, like other, other denominations. But, um, but it was more loving the church and the church being in a certain sense kind of another parent to me. And that's really where I found that faith. Um, I think those are, um, people automatically think that you have a spiritual experience and you become a pastor because you have the spiritual experience or you just love God so much, you have a deep experience in God and you therefore decide to go and be a pastor. Um, and that's true. There are those people who have those experiences and their their love, uh, their experience of God really moves them into going in pastoral ministry. And I think there are other folks who just, who just love the church and um, God works through mysterious ways through the people of the church. Um, God works through the doctrines and the teachings um, of the church, the organization of the church, the administration of the church, and that was really where I found myself. And so becoming a pastor for me was being a part of that institution, being a part of that group, um, you know, uh, wrestling with the theological doctrines of the church, um, knowing what the church believes and why it believes it, um, and also being a part of that community. That really is what drew me to, uh, to being a pastor. Um, so I uh, am a, uh, what would be considered kind of a first career pastor. Um, I graduated from, uh, from college in, um, in 1994, went to seminary in my 20s, um, graduated in 1998 um, as a young man of you know, 28 years old, and I uh, have been in the ministry ever since. So I'm not necessarily, I wouldn't be considered a second career or anything like that. I'm not a part of that. You know, now, you know, kind of now shrinking group of people who get out of college, who go to seminary and who kind of work in the church for, you know, for 30 or 40 years and hopefully retire sooner or other later. Um, so that's been my experience for most of my life, um, being a clergy member, um, you know, starting in my early 20s as a pastor. So that's kind of like my story. I, I, I live a pretty, you know, boring life. I live in the Midwest suburbs. You know, I've got, Three kids and a wife. I don't have any dogs or cats or any animals. And I drive. I drive a, drive a minivan and and, um, and and live in the suburbs. You know, so in a very you know much more kind of church suburbs of Nebraska. Um, so that's I, I don't definitely don't live a very flashy life. You know, I'm not really 
not one of those, you know, interesting people from the coasts or something, you know. Um, so just kind of live a pretty, much, pretty normal life and try to figure out how to, you know, be a good husband and how to maneuver through life dealing with two teenage girls and a teenage son, you know, around the house. Well, I can completely sympathize with all that. You know, being raised in the tradition I was, there was a lot of emphasis on having what you might call a Damascus Road experience. You know, you know that you're you're a grievous sinner, and you come to realize, you know, your depravity, and you you know you ask Jesus into your heart, and you have a yeah. a radically changed life. And I don't want to take anything away from that. I know many people who had that experience. And it's beautiful to see someone turn from a, a destructive way of life and embrace a new and beautiful, productive way of life. You know, but that's not the case for all of us. I grew up in the church and just kind of, like yourself, I guess, I just kind of never doubted the faith. I, I loved it and appreciated it. As a young man, at, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, for a temporary period of time, I decided I didn't need all that, you know, structure. And I could just be my own little Christian, off to myself, and it, it didn't take long. You know, I felt I felt the desire to come back to the community. I realized I couldn't take for granted the wholesomeness that I felt being a part of the Christian Christian community. Right, right, and some of the benefits of that too. You know, multi-generational relationships. Um, you know, um, on being able to. Uh, to uh, deal with people on a Sunday morning, perhaps, or at a, at a church function that are, well, not to be your grandparents, but also dealing with other people's kids, you know, my kids seeing other adults and, and recognizing other adults and then have other, other adults having an impact on our lives beyond just me. Um, yeah, there are certainly certain benefits when it comes to church community, with sometimes it's problems as well, but yeah, there is a benefit to community. Right, especially for people who don't have a large extended family. I think to be able to walk that road of joy and grief, you know, and, and being on both ends of ministering to people, you know, when your family's struggling, there's a family that picks up the slack, and when, when another family's struggling, your family is able to step in and pick up the slack. I think to some degree, you know, as technology improves, I think we're losing a little bit or maybe a lot of what it means to have people you can depend on and people who depend on you. And, uh, you know, we live right next to people and we don't even know their kids' names. It, it's something special, I think, when you can be a part of a, of an extended community of people who, who are looking out for each other. Yeah. And, uh, not just for each other, but, but the whole community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, you grew up in the faith like myself. I mean, what was your, when did you first hear about psychedelics? Like, and, and how, what was your, your thoughts and your reactions to such things? I mean, obviously, you know, I assume if you went to public school, you know, you probably heard, you know, a teacher or a, or a traveling youth director of sorts come in and tell you about the dangers of drugs and alcohol and, I based a lot of my thoughts on such things on on what I heard in those regards. Mm-hmm. Television commercials, Saturday specials, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, uh, growing up in um, growing up in California in the seventies and the eighties, obviously the Just Say No generation. Um, you know, Nancy Reagan, you know, dangerous war on drugs, Nixon, prohibitionary environment. 
um, you know, that was, um, that was part of, that, that was kind of a culture that I think most of us lived in, um, you know, when it came to, uh, when it, when it came to our cultures, uh, in my experience, the drugs, you know, just hearing, you know, seeing the commercials on TV and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, my parents never really talked to me about drugs or dangerous drugs. Um, you know, we talked, um, you know, my dad, um, in a, in a certain time in his life when I was growing up, um, was more of a prohibitionist when it came to alcohol. Um, so there was a time when they were kind of going through their charismatic Christian experience where they dumped all the alcohol out. And, um, and, you know, so we became, uh, you know, we became instant teetotalers, but it wasn't ever really demonizing it or anything. It was just, you know, this is just not, this is just not what we do, um, you know, around here. So there's a little bit of alcohol around the house. I went to a, a private Lutheran school, um, and so there really wasn't anything when it came to substances um, at this private Lutheran school. We didn't talk about drugs uh, in middle school. You know, there was uh, none of my friends had access to drugs, or if they did, I didn't know about it. Um, when I got to high school in the 80s, uh, in, the, in, the, in the mid to late 80s, this was my, really my first experience um, with other people when it came to drugs um, and psychedelics as well. Um, I had a friend who I was part of a, the, the, we, the, our high school had a, had a, a small radio station, like 250 watt radio station. And of course, you know, with the radio station, you know, I got, I got connected up with some people who were really into music in the 60s and the 70s, and they were also rather interested in, in some of the drugs associated with that. Um, and, um, and so of course, uh, being in California in the 80s, you know, we were, you know, a couple hours away from Humboldt and, you know, from, from some of the, you know, from some of the, the, the most exquisite, you know, marijuana that was being grown around the world, you know, in Northern California. So, of course, some of that kind of filtered out in growing up in, uh, in, uh, in Northern California. But um, I did not uh, take any psychedelics when I was in middle school or high school. My uh, first experience was a friend of mine who had uh, taken LSD and gone to a concert, and he had parents who were very conservative Christians, and they found out. And I remember him getting in a lot of trouble um, for taking LSD, um, you know, and getting in a lot of trouble by his conservative parents. But I did have friends who said, here, take this, or you should do this. And it, I had other goals that were, you know, interesting to me in life. So when it came to psychedelics, I was not really much interested in them. And they just didn't kind of interact with my, you know, life story. It was only until later um, when I learned more about psychedelics. And um, I became a little more interested in in them and in these substances in general. Um, so no, early on I did had zero, you know, a little bit of friends, you know, some friends who had experiences with them, but other than that, meaning you know, not having any specific experience with any personal experience um, taking psychedelics um, in high school or even in college up until you know they got older. Right. So at what point did so? Um... You went to a Lutheran school for elementary, and then in middle school advanced to a public public government school. Was in um, was in uh, Lutheran school, a private school, um, up until eighth grade, okay. and then so I went to public high school. Right, and, you know, I think that that can be really formative for a child. You know, having having early education and being surrounded by people with cohesive values. By the time you're thirteen, fourteen. You know, a lot of your thoughts on these things have formed, and at least for the for the few years ahead, you kind of already have a foundation of being, you know, less exposed to those things. So maybe for better or worse, you're you're more hesitant to engage. Yeah, my, my children um, have had private education as well. You know, up until they were in middle school. Again, for better or worse, I can, I, from what my you know, from my perspective, better, I can see the benefits of them being 
you know, not exposed to that early on and being able to engage with people on those topics, at least in a, in a slightly more mature, you know, understanding. Yeah. I, I think it has a lot of benefits for, for young people to be in a, in a more structured environment. Yeah, exactly. I, w- I would agree. Um, I know this is not a parenting podcast, but my kids go to, my kids are in middle school, and my kids have gone to public school, you know, their entire lives. Um, and I know, and maybe this is just kind of culturally, I know they know more about, um, especially cannabis, um, they know more about cannabis and the use of cannabis than, than I ever knew growing up. And I've actually had to change some of the ways that, um, that I, that we have a conversation about that, you know, saying to them, you know, having to kind of dispel some myths, perhaps, that maybe they heard about cannabis, um, having to say to them, you know what, not never do cannabis, but saying, you know what, it could be that when you go off to college somewhere, you might be in a, you might go to Colorado, or you might go to you know, Illinois, you might go to, you might, you might go to Massachusetts, you might go to a, you know, to a place where cannabis is legal. And you're going to have to make some choices rather than saying, no, don't do this or don't do that. Just say, as you go into those environments, you have to make some choices, you know, when you turn 21 years old, because what is legal might not be the best thing for you, or maybe it might be something good for you. Um, so I've even had to change kind of how the framing, at least in my conversation with them, the framing about drugs. And we can even look at psychedelics nowadays. Psychedelics are starting to get more positive press. You know, um, psychedelics for depression, for smoking cessation, for helping people with alcoholism, treatment-resistant you know, depression, um, end of life, uh, helping people uh, deal with end of life issues. You know, and 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 how do the, how do the stories talk about that? The, you know, suicide. But the ingredient that magic mushrooms and usually there's a picture on the story of you know magic mushrooms growing and, and you know just to try and you know turn some people off. You know, but nowadays. My kids, uh, my kids might be in an environment where maybe there is psilocybin treatment, you know, and if there's totally against magic mushrooms, well, what if there's a treatment that might help them that's based on those substances? We were not, obviously not talking about this 10, 20 years ago, right. you know, so it's just the environment now. It's, it's at, least, at least in my opinion, very different when it comes to discussions about the substances now. Yeah, at the very least, they're going to have peers using these substances and, and, yeah. and compounds and, and, and peers that are going to have views on them. They're going to have to navigate those conversations. You know, and if they walk into that conversation immediately with a judgmental attitude, they may negatively impact their ability to converse with people. Just basic, you know, time, socialization, you know, speaking to people, meeting people on their own terms. If something is legal in a certain environment where they live, you know, it may be difficult to just navigate basic, you know, just pure discussions if they have, you know, judgmental attitudes. So, yeah, in my household, we are just, we're open to talking about those things. You know, um, no, no subject is off the table. You know, if you have a question about something, let's discuss it. And if dad can't answer that, that question, then we're going to find someone who, who can. You know, I think the worst thing we can do is demonize people for asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. And for being, just being vulnerable. Right. Well, I'm, I'm just very eager to hear about your participation in the study. The study we're, we're speaking of is the John Hopkins Psilocybin for Religious Leaders study. But before we go into that, 
since it is using one compound, psilocybin, if you don't mind, maybe you could just give a brief description or explanation of what is psilocybin. Yeah. Um, I'm not uh, an expert on the pharmacology, but, you know, psilocybin, and I believe also, um, you know, there's another compound, psilocin. Um, you know, those are the active ingredients in um, the psilocybin cubensis or, you know, a, a specific um, uh, um, a variety of mushroom that grows in, you know, different areas in the world. Um, which we would know as magic mushrooms, um, but they're, you know, you look at what's, you know, pejoratively called magic mushrooms, it is a specific type of mushroom, and, um, and that mushroom produces, um, um, psilocybin and psilocin, and it's, and it's those two compounds that, um, that create the, uh, the psychedelic effects, um, out of, uh, in, um, within that, within that, within those, uh, substances. So, um, yes, within the studies, um, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of any of the studies. I don't know of the details of the studies. Um, but in my, in, in the experience that I had, um, I was given a synthesized dose, two synthesized doses of psilocybin. So this is, you know, this is not, it, it wasn't like, you know, they said, well, here, you know, munch on, you know, munch on five grams of magic mushrooms. So that wasn't that new. It had been, it was, it was psilocybin that had been synthesized, created in a lab. Um, that has shared the same characteristics of those compounds that are found in what we would pejoratively know as magic mushroom or some uh, or psilocybin cubensis um, would be the would be the, uh, would be the mushrooms. Um, so yes, and so that was part of my experience was um, using being given silicon psilocybin, um, and which is kind of interesting, you know, when you think about why they use psilocybin. Um, for these studies and some of my, you know, some of my background uh, as I looked into this, um, psilocybin is, uh, there's less emotional impact in psilocybin. If, um, if they would have said, um, you know, they gave me, uh, they gave me a hit acid or they gave me, you know, LSD, and people were like, whoa, you know, LSD, why, why are you still talking? You know, why isn't your brain scrambled or something? Um, there's just so much more emotional connection to you know, those three letters, LSD. Um, and so psilocybin is kind of easier to kind of get past, um, uh, get past medical boards and, uh, and people don't, there's not the emotional attachment associated with it. There's a lot of cultural baggage. Exactly. And psilocybin, you know, beyond, from onset to, to the conclusion, you know, to your kind of interacting with consensus reality thing is about six hours. Um, so researchers can, you know, they can have their study and then they can go home and have dinner with their family. You know, right. so it's not like LSD, which took um, you know, 12 hours, you know, 13, 14 hours from what I've heard when it comes to uh, effects. Um, so, so psilocybin also has a, has a, has a shorter window of effect. So that's, again, yeah, probably more than you wanted to, you know, wanted to hear about some. No, that's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. So, so psilocybin was, uh, it was the, the, the substance I was given. Unlike other studies, which maybe we use MDMA, which, is that a is that a psychedelic? Is it not? You know, some people would kind of debate that. Um, unlike the studies now, they're using MDMA. Um, studies in the past that have used DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Um, those are other studies um, that have been done when it comes to using psychedelic for other source or compounds that you know have psychoactive effects. But yes, the one I the one I did was specifically working with uh, psilocybin. Right. No, that's that's perfect. And just to clarify. The, the dosage that you were given was a synthesized pharmaceutical product. And, and that's important because my understanding is it's very, 
it's very easy for them to to isolate a prescribed dose. Whereas if you were using, you know, the, the basic mushroom, for example, you know, the, the ability to quantify the actual amount the patient received would be somewhat up in the air. Oh, yes, exactly. You know, from, you know, from one, you know, from one cubensis, cubensis mushroom to the next, you know, you, know, you could have varying degrees of, uh, of, of, of psilocybin within those. Um, you know, from one from one batch to the next, you know, uh, from one variety to the next, it could be it could be very different. So, you know, they obviously wanted something where if we're giving you you know this amount, we want to make sure scientifically that that we're giving everybody the same amount, or we're able to control the dose or not, kind of make it a little bit more up to uh, up to the whims of nature and the natural process. So, yes, exactly, very very true. Well, at the essence of a study, there's a desire to eliminate as many variables as possible, you know, and so, you know, it is, exactly. if you can keep consistent, you know, dosage with every patient, then you can kind of have a baseline with, with which to draw conclusions from. Exactly. Well, I know, you know, I read some of the, the, the information available online at John Hopkins. You know, they, it, it appeared that they were seeking people who were, for lack of a better word, or maybe even they directly stated it, people who are hallucinogenically naive. Um, would you would you have put yourself in that category? Um, okay. Yeah, I, I would have totally been in that category. Um, you know, I, I had not had any. Um, you know, I had not had any um, natural. And, and again, we talk about you know um, mystical experiences. And I think it's good. I think it's important to recognize that. You, know, you can have mystical or hallucinogenic experiences in a number of different ways. You know, some people really key on, you know, you take a substance like, you know, magic mushrooms or LSD and have a, you know, have a mystical or, or, or a hallucinogenic experience. That's kind of the wrong word, but we'll just kind of use that for the sake of, um, right. my, that's the wrong word. Um, but, um, but, you know, those can come through a number of different ways. I've heard, you know, some people go through natural childbirth. Not part of my experience, but I've heard natural childbirth. People can have, you know, psychedelic experiences or mystical experiences. Of fasting um, can be another one. Other compounds. Some people just kind of spontaneously you know, have these experiences. Um, so I think it's good for us. I think it's good for at least for me and others to recognize that yes, there are, you know there is a way that you can you are guaranteed to have have one of these experiences. You know, take this substance and something's going to happen. Um, but that that these experiences can happen to a number of different people throughout the centuries in, di- in different ways. Right. So you're there in the Midwest, you know, driving the kids around in the minivan. Uh, how did you hear about this study? Um, what you know? How did it get on your radar? And what were your thoughts when you first heard about it? Uh, it came across my radar um, in an email digest that I get each day of uh, specific religious um, um, news topics. You know, and I like to scan through that. You know, it's everything from you know what's what what the Baptists are doing these days to you know what, what's going on in other religions and one of the uh, you know, one of the uh, the articles that popped up into that um, talked about um, um, although in fact it was an article from the Guardian newspaper. It said religious leaders get high on on magic mushrooms ingredient for science. You know, I thought, well that's interesting. You know, um, um, what are these religious leaders doing, and what what is this all about? You know, it, it, you know my interest at that point had been really interested 
Um, I'm a big learner. I like to learn about new things, and I get into a, I look at, get into a topic and see if I can learn as much as I can about it. Then I get move on to the next topic. But I've been uh, getting interested in entheogenic uses of these substances, kind of questioning what we've been told about specifically cannabis and and and, um, and psychedelic substances. You know, and, and our minds have been shaped really by kind of shaped by the war on drugs and that view of that view of these substances. And I thought to myself. I wonder, you know, what's the history of these substances? We tend to be very interested in the history of cannabis use for spiritual purposes, religious purposes, not just not just medicinal or recreational. But what about the centuries use of um, of, of, of these substances we call called drugs, but used for spiritual purposes? So we're really getting interested in that. And um, also being in, you know, being in my 40s at that time and, you know, my late 40s and, you know, I'm doing the kid thing, I'm doing the family thing, I'm doing the house suburbs kind of thing. Um, and just really kind of wanting to get, become more interested and maybe having some different experiences as well. Um, and that, and that, email, that email came up, that story came up and I thought, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're still asking for folks, but I'll, I'll see about it. You know, and I'm not a very... Yeah, I'm not a very daring guy. I, I, I don't. I, I don't really push the envelope. I'm not very adventurous and kind of a quiet. Like to stay at home. You know, not really interested in seeing the world or you know, doing any of engaging in really risky behavior. I'm not really a risky behavior kind of guy. But I thought, yeah, oh, this might be interesting. I wonder what it would be like. And it's within a legal environment, and um, and it seems like you know, we're doing it as part of a study. I'm a religious leader. I'm interested in this. My denomination doesn't necessarily have any specific prohibitions against this. Um, it's been approved by the FDA. I mean, it seems like I kind of line up when it comes to all of these, you know, all the things that they're looking for within the study. So um, I, I contact with them and with the screening process. I visited the folks there um, at Johns Hopkins University for some pre-work um, and then uh, went through that experience. Um, after having some pre-screening and mental health evaluations, physical, they, um, they did a, they did a, um, a, a, a physical uh, a makeup, um, a physical test to make sure that um, I didn't have any physical uh, things that might cause some problems. Um, so that's really kind of what it was. I was, was interested in antigenic substances and how they're used within religious for religious purposes. This study was there. I kind of matched all the qualifications. I was at a point in my life where, you know, I thought, hey, might as well. I'm kind of older and hopefully at least a little bit more wiser than I would have been if I was 18 or 19 years old. Um, and so it all kind of worked out for it to happen. Yeah. Um, so when you finally made the decision to do that, um, did you... Well, how did that conversation, you know, work with your spouse, your family, your congregation? You know, how did you you forward that 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 bridge? Yeah, um, I didn't tell my congregation that I was going through. I told my bishop, um, you know, my denominational head, and I asked him about it, and um, you know, he didn't really see any. Um, you know, there wasn't really. We don't. We're not like the Methodists. We don't have a book of discipline. That, um, that says what you can and cannot do when it comes to substances like this. Um, so there's really nothing in our church documents that's um, you know, our denominational documents that said that something like this would be prohibited. Um, so that was kind of an open conversation with him about you know, me being accepted into this study. Um, you know, my wife was, uh, was uh, skeptical 
know, during the process. And so we had to have some discussions about that. Um, I think, you know, some of her biggest concerns were, um, you know, I was going to go off and lose my mind or something. Um, and I also had some friends who, um, you know, some, some, and an individual who was worried about that, you know, if you kind of go off and do this, you know, are you going to, you know, are you going to come back? Actually, it's the same with my, you know, it was my, it was my mother. Um, and I talked to her, you know, are you going to go off and, you know, lose your mind, you know, when it comes to this? So, you know, there was plenty of skepticism and, um, and kind of, uh, you know, from, from those who were, you know, closest to me, um, about this. But ultimately it was, all right, well, no, you're going to do this. So, you know, kind of follow your bliss kind of an acceptance that this is something that I really wanted to do, um, an experience that I really wanted to have, and so there was a kind of an acquiescence to that. So it wasn't any, by any means, you know, from those, you know, those around me, like, oh, yeah, yes, this is your dream, you know, follow this passion, because, okay, if you're going to you're gonna be a part of this, then, uh, then, uh, then okay, uh, you know, follow your bliss, even though, it, uh, even though there was some worries about that. Yeah, well, that was... Like I said, I did not, I did not tell my congregation... Um, you know, I, you know, um, I didn't make a big announcement about it. Um, and I still haven't made a big announcement about it. You know, it's a part of the our council president, um, you know, about it. But, um, at this point, it doesn't really, I don't know, it hasn't really, um, um, I think it's had an impact on the way I'm a leader. Um, I think it's had some impacts on the way that I look at the world. I think it has had some impacts on my theology. But um, I, I definitely don't, um, I, I, I don't jump in and preach the gospel of psychedelics. You know, like, oh, I had this experience and now my hair is on fire and you know, we need to now be a psychedelic church or we all need to take psychedelics together. Um, I just learned very quickly that, um, yes, I might have had some very profound experiences, but, um, but those are my experiences and I and, and you know, some people who might benefit from those experiences, other people that would not benefit from those experiences, and people were not a part of the congregation that I was serving, um, we were not there to hear about my profound psychedelic experiences. That, that's not what they signed up for. Right. They signed up to be a part of the church, you know. And um, I thought it would be um, professionally and personally, it would have been um, wrong of me to all have, to have these experiences and suddenly change the entire culture of a congregation. Um, that is not what they signed up for. And that's not um, that's not essentially what I brought to the table before this. Um, so there was some the kind of personal negotiation that I had to have um, about how do I share this? How do I, you know, what I've learned in these experiences? How does it impact my congregation? And I think the impacts were subtle, and probably for some folks, for most folks, they probably wouldn't know that they kind of came out of an experience like this. And we, oh, okay, we have a different value now on our congregation. Oh, our you know, or maybe our, um, maybe the preaching has changed a little bit, you know, or maybe, um, maybe the programming has perhaps changed a little bit. Maybe we're doing some things a little bit differently, or maybe our social media posts are a little bit better than they were, you know, a couple of years ago. But I don't think anybody would have said, oh, and that's because Linda, you know, went up, went to the study and has like it all. I think it was, um, I want one of things to be a little bit more subtle. Right. That's, uh, that's good news, really. I mean, it didn't interfere with your, you know, your your job, your basic job of serving your congregation, meeting their needs, you know, teaching and preaching. But so you were able to assuage the concerns of your family and you know your your authorities in the church. And so, what about your own concerns? Like, did you have trepidations about 
losing your mind or, or radically changing, you know, uh, leaving your family to go be a monk or, I mean, you know, all these, I mean, people often, um, are very hesitant to experience these things when their, when their life is in a comfortable balance. I mean, cause no one wants to wreck a great life. I guess from the 500 mile up view, you know, your life was balanced and well contained. You know, you're a family man, you have a career, you know, you're a man of the church. Did you have any fears or nervous, anxious reservations about how this might alter your course of life? Yeah, not, not really, actually. You know, other than my, other than a friend of mine back in high school having kind of a negative experience with LSD, um, at least that's my perception was, um, I had not, um, you know, I hadn't had any interest, I hadn't had any knowledge, I hadn't done any study when it came to psychedelics, so I really knew very little about psychedelic, and all of the, you know, 80s, you know, drug war propaganda had kind of gone by the wayside, so I just, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any of that at all that I'd kind of forgotten, um, and then, you know, when I was let into, when I was, um, when I was um, approved to go into the study, I really quit doing research on stuff, which is not usually what I do. Usually I just love to get learn information and learn about arguments, learn about something. And I said, no, in this experience, I'm just going to go through it. Um, and I also really knew that I was in capable hands. I mean, when you go to, <laughs> when you go for your initial interviews at, you know, Johns Hopkins University and there's an emergency room that's like, you know, that's, that's, that's about four flights of stairs away from you. And when they are, you know, when they're doing a physical screening, when you see the environment that you're in, um, when you talk with the individuals who are going to be with you and who are going to be guiding, uh, guiding you a lot more, and maybe sitting with you in these sessions, um, there's really, at least for me, there was not really a whole bunch to worry about. If I had any worries about, oh, what happens if, you know, I have some sort of allergic reaction? Well, we're just going to wheel you over to the emergency room, which is just right across, you know, we can see the emergency room from where we're sitting, you know. And what if I have anything distressing happen? Well, we have two, you know, trained individuals, one of them, the very respected, you know, therapist within the field who is sitting right there, you know. Um, so there just really wasn't a whole lot for me to be worried about. If I did have those worries, then I, I was in a, I was, I was in, and the Cadillac of psychedelic experiences that you can't have. I mean, I mean, I guess you can, but at least in my opinion, I just everything was really kind of fine-tuned um, to not have um, to, to mitigate from any negative experiences. But um, I was very confident in the screening um, and, and the screening that they did for me and the questions that they had me asked me. So if they felt that I was, you know, of the uh, psychological fortitude to go through with it, then I guess I'll trust them. You know. So no, I didn't really have. I mean, there was just some nervousness, a little bit of nervousness about being in this place and taking this substance. Is kind of the gravity surrounding that. Um, but no, I didn't really have a whole lot of like, oh, I, I gotta, you know, maybe I better quit. Maybe I better get out of this. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, these people seem to know what they're doing, and there seemed to be, uh, you know, kind of a process. And I'm kind of following through the through the, through the steps and going through the process. I guess I should trust the system. So, um, so I kind of came into it with very little. Um, with some anxiety, but not major anxiety about the situation. Yeah, sounds like going in maybe for a basic surgery, you know, where you're going to have to be put under and you're going to yeah. have an, you know, experience. In that case, a physical yeah. surgical experience, and then you'll be revived later and you know sent home with your family. So it sounds yeah. like you were, you felt like you were in good hands and capable people, experienced people who yeah. could, you know, help you navigate 
should any, any negativity arise. Right. And I didn't watch any bad truth videos on YouTube, you know, that people talked about their bad truth. I, just, I didn't expose myself to really much of that at all, any of that. Um, so I think I kind of came in to the process, even uh, a little naive, perhaps, and um, but definitely a, a, definitely a psychedelic virgin, as I said. Well, I think, I mean, I think that that made you a, a perfect candidate for what they were trying to achieve in the study, which is to get, you know, pure experiences from people who don't have a lot of baggage. And that way you, they can get data that's based on someone who is uh, naive to not put any negative connotation on that word, but to just, um, uh, you know, just your pure experience without being informed by historical social data or maybe bringing someone else's experience into your own and that can kind of contaminating your own personal experience. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of anxiety, at least for me, that was reduced when you could just say, you know what, this is a 100% legal study. I mean, think of think of all the people who maybe have psychedelic experiences and have to do them in an underground situation, um, you know, have to do them in situations where maybe they're kind of thinking about or having to wrestle with, well, this is something that is deemed illegal by society, even though society's you know, views on this are so slowly shifting. Um, but I think there's also a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of reduction and anxiety, at least for me, in this idea of that, you know, this is approved by the FDA, you know, um, and the government says that this is okay for me to be doing. Um, I think there's a whole lot of um, positivity, at least for me, that comes from, for better or for worse, from there being, there not being that stigma, at least legally, you know, um, that this is something illegal that you do. You know, obviously, other people might have a different, you know, a different view, um, but at least according to the government, 100% legal in that, in that, in that environment. Right. I think that, I think that, that, I think that has an, has an effect as well. Oh, certainly. You can rest easy knowing that you're not, you know, compromising your ability to provide for your family. You right. know, should someone hear about this or something like that. Right. Well, exactly. Well, tell us a little bit about the environment. Obviously, you expressed that it was, it was, you know, well contained and comfortable and that there were emergency staff available and that there were counselors present. What's the, to use the classic terminology, what's the set and setting of the environment where this took place? Yeah. And there are, um, you know, and just, you know, before I go into more into that, um, you know, what I'm sharing is, um, is information about the study. They haven't released all this, all of the, they haven't released the final report. Um, about the study, and I'm not sure when they're going to be doing that. So really what I will be speaking to um, is information that one could also find online. I, I'm not, you know, there's certain things. The experiences that I'm talking about have already been published in other online articles by the people at Johns Hopkins University. Um, so uh, so I just want to make sure that I'm not, that I'm not revealing any information um, I don't want to. I don't want to interfere in the study that they're doing in any way, or you know, talk about results because I don't know any of the other results um, when it comes to other when it comes to other people, and I don't know. I don't have an inside track about you know what the conclusions of the study will be. Um, but at least the information that I'm talking about is pretty common uh, information that's out there on the internet. But um, you know, in this situation, you are in a room that, um, and it's you know, it's in a um, you know, it's in a t- traditional um, you know kind of office. Complex office building. Um, you know, you would never know that there are people who are taking psychedelics. Um, you know, in this building, this, this traditional academic looking building, and their office is there, and you know, there's a lobby, and there's a security guard, and all that kind of stuff that would be just with any, any normal 
university institution or university offices. Um, but there, uh, but the room that I was in had been redecorated um, to not look like an office. Um, but um, but the you know the lighting was different. There was a sound system. Um, there was a couch. There was um, um, religious artwork um, that was there. Um, chairs for my guides. Um, a blood pressure monitor. You know, they monitor your blood pressure um, during uh, you know, during the study. Um, so it wasn't you know, necessarily a, 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 a sterile. Um, wasn't necessarily a, a a sterile hospital room, but it was more of a comfortable environment where I could lay down and um, and um, be a little bit more comfortable and not have you know, neon, you know, not having fluorescent lights, you know, kind of, you know hitting my eyes. Um, so there was a so there was an attention to the aesthetics of the the place, and again having some religious symbols around um, was also important. Uh, lower lower lighting um, as well, and uh, you know essentially what I did was um, you know I, I came in there, I had some discussions with um, people who were going to be my uh, you know be my facilitators. I got to know them over a number of interviews uh, and discussions, and then uh, and then when I was there for the day of the study, um, I wore comfortable clothes. Um, I uh, they presented me with um, you know with the with the pill. You know, I think it's a blue pill. I think it was the um, the matrix references and all that kind of stuff. You know, but uh, but you know they had the they had the they had the compound there, and I took it and. Um, Put on some earphones and put on some eye shades. Um, they, um, they don't allow you to go outside. Um, you know, for most of it, at least in my experience, I had very little interaction with the people who were there, with the two facilitators who were there. Um, sometimes they did. Um, sometimes they did, but not really. Um, I, I really wasn't. Um, you know, when I when I was um, when I, in, the, in the experiences that I was having, you know, they really they really. Um, Encourage you to go inside, to go inward, you know, to go more meditative rather than going out into nature, you know, or um, or uh, going to a concert or anything like that. You know, it's much more of a interior, internal focus to see what happens when you go inside. So that's why you have the eye shades on, um, and that's why you listen to the music. The music is kind of a guide for you as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I had probably I had very little interaction. I had some interaction, but very little interaction. Um, with, with my facilitators, most of what I did was listen to the music, put on my eye shade, maybe I would say something, maybe they would write these down for me. Um, you know, if I was having an experience or I wanted to share something, they would write these down for me. Um, but most of it was an internal journey. Um, I would say 80% of what it was was an internal journey. I was not particularly interested when I went through it. I was, you know, and some people are. Some people are interested in interacting with the world, you know, interacting with, you know, artwork or, you know, looking at artwork or looking at other objects. I was not looking at family pictures or that sort of stuff. I was not interested in that at all. I mean, like, you know what? Forget you all. I'm, I'm, I'm going on an interior journey. And most of what I experienced was um, interior work, self-work, personal work. Um, um, I think interior work is probably the best word that can be used for it. Um, but again, I was laying on a couch, shed a blanket. Um, you know, sometimes you can get a little towards your body temperature and get cold. Sometimes, so I was able to lay down in a comfortable environment after uh, after having this, and was there for five or six hours um, during that uh, during that time. Wow, interesting. You did not not they to be. My, real quick, they took my phone away from me, and they locked up my phone. So I mean, I didn't have any. I didn't have. I, there, there were no clocks. So I had no concept of what time it was, and I had no notifications on my phone going off. I got to answer this email, I got to answer that email. 
you know, um, you know, I reserved that time on my calendar. Um, so I think that was, uh, sorry to kind of interrupt you here, but I think that's important that there also wasn't any kind of outside, it's, it's not like I had, you know, a television on or watching cartoons or anything, you know, or, or, or I wasn't watching the news or I wasn't watching YouTube videos or anything like that. I'm not saying those things are bad, but it was totally clearing out a space and a time and everything from the quote unquote outside world was put aside for that moment, just focus specifically on that moment. I think that's pretty important when it comes to experiences like this, and to have your phone locked away from you. Especially in the younger generation, who always has their phone, they're always connected. Just disconnected to social media, they're disconnected to, you know, the outside world for that six, six eight hours. Yeah, I think that would be very important, you know, especially with your intention to go on an inward, you know, focus. If you're constantly being berated by notifications or someone, you know, shaking you asking if you need a drink of water or something of that nature, that could that could really interfere with your ability to, you know, to maintain a present focus on, on your intentions. Um exactly. Not to be, you know, crass or 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 anything, but like um during the experience, was it necessary for you to reach out to them for assistance in say going to the restroom or something of that nature? Were they I mean, did you have, at that point, would you remove the music and the eye shades and... Yeah, so, so you know, with some, there, yeah, there are a number of different, um, because of the protocol, um, they don't generally leave you alone. Um, oh, of course, when you go to the bathroom, they're going to stay next to you, but, uh, you know, because when you're under the influence of psilocybin, it can affect you, some of your perception, and it can affect, you know, maybe your, your, your what, motor skills. Um, so if I needed to use the restroom, then they had a restroom there where I just, you know, it was, it was like the next, it was like the next door over. And so they would walk me to the door and, you know, and then, um, and then I could use the restroom there. Um, but I did not go outside. If I needed something to eat, they would bring that to me. You know, they had some food prepared, some light snacks that they sent me to go, which I did eat. Best grades I ever had, you know. Um, but, um, but yeah, so they did not just say, oh, bad, move down the hall to the left. Um, you know, they were, keenly aware of if I was going through this that there were also um there was also some physical changes and that and that uh, they didn't want me to fall down and get my head on the sink or anything like that. So yeah, very um, um very in tune to my physical needs as well. Um making sure that if I needed to use the restroom or they said I need to use the restroom that they allowed me to do that and then we could do that safely. Right. And I'm sure they were taking notes on your motor skills and and things of that nature as well to kind of, you know, to gather data and see if there are consistencies from one participant to another, to the other. I'm sure. Perhaps I didn't, I, I didn't, they didn't give me those notes if they, they were, but that would be the way to do that. Well, what, you know, to what degree you're comfortable can you share with us the experience? I mean, obviously at the onset you were, you were lying comfortably with your, your, you know, your eyes closed and you had some music. Which I assume was somewhat cathartic and not, you know, uh, random and chaotic. And so, how did, you know, to the best of your memory, um, how did, how did that experience begin to unfold? It's, um, you know, when I wrote in my, you know, because of my personal journals, I think I used words of, um, you know, if I had tried to explain that experience in words, it would take me a hundred million years to be able to just unpack that. So just know, um, you know, just know that we're kind of, we're kind of dealing with the limits of language. 
Um, and that um, and that some things that I experienced just kind of stayed in that room because I don't I don't remember them. But I, I mean, I remember having a profound experience, but I can't necessarily relate exactly. You know what those uh, what those experiences were like. It really is a journey of pure feeling, pure emotion. Um, it, it, there's a it's just a different quality when it comes to the experiences that you're having. You know, so like, you know, consensus reality, I could, you know, think about an experience and I can explain it to you and I could kind of quote language and words about that when it comes to the psychedelic experience. It's much harder to do that, um, um, just because of the nature of the experience. But I have kind of searched for some models to help me put some, you know, help me put some context as much as I can around this, around my experiences that I had because there's just so many of them. Um, so there's a there's a there's a, um, a philosopher um, Peter Sosjet uh, Hughes, as, and his, I don't know exactly how to say his last name. That's kind of the best that I got. Um, but he is uh, right now he's currently living in England. He is a he is a, um, a philosopher, a psychedelic philosopher, um, um, and he has this great schema of, of kind of describing some of the, some of the what I call kind of the big picture themes um, within a psychedelic experience. And, and as I think about his big picture themes, his schema, it really matched some of my experience. So one of those is three of them. One of them is um, an experience of the other. So the other would be, um, for me, conscious communication where someone else, usually um, usually a sentient being, some uh, another person that was outside of myself, like just like we're having an experience. You know, I'm talking with you, you're talking with me. I realize that you're a, a sentient being um, with intelligence um, that I'm talking with, but that would be an experience that would be another psychedelic experience, but not with another physical human being. So, um, you know, for me, experiences of, you know, what I would consider um, spirit guides or angels, not necessarily seeing angels, but having the communication with a, with a, a presence that is not me, that is actively intelligent communicating with you. So in early parts of my experience, you know, when the anxiety is usually kind of some come up anxiety, um, the preparation time, and me really believing that there was a spirit guide, um, and what I would call, you know, an angel, like an angel Gabriel or something, who was there to kind of prepare me, to climb with me, to get me ready for that experience and communicating with you. Um, so communication with the other. Um, Would you describe that as a more um, telepathic presence, more than a conversational type presence? Yeah, exactly. Much more of a telepathic presence. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not using a language by any means. For me, under the psychedelic experience, you know, physiologically, experientially, um, <sighs> and it doesn't happen to all people. Well, I'm not going to say what happens to other people. I'm not going to just describe my experience. Oh, I can tell you other people's experience, I can tell you mine, you know. Um, but at least for me, and with these doses of psilocybin, um, there, come, there came for me a time where everything that we would experience as consensus reality, and I would experience as consensus reality drops off, drops away. Um, and, 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 you know, so um, I would shed, so I shed, you know, from my experience, I shed my gender. Um, I I did not so I I, I, I didn't really realize I, I, my gender was not you know was not um, part of my experience so I was kind of genderless um, my roles as husband and father and Christian and clergy and pastor 
and here, you know, those roles, you know, you know my political associations, you know, my political um, um, views, all of that dropped away, and I became just a point of reference without all of those things that we would call, that I would call me, me, you know? And if you imagine, just go imagine later, all of a sudden, you know, and you don't know what your name, you, not you don't know, it sounds kind of wrong, um, that your name doesn't matter, your gender doesn't matter, where you are doesn't matter, time doesn't matter, um, you know, you, your role as a, as a, as a father doesn't matter, all those things don't matter at that point. Well, the thing I see consistent with all those is that they're all temporal, earthly roles. Yep. They're exactly. not. They're not eternal roles. For what exactly. that's worth. For what that's worth. Right. Yeah. So you become. At least I became. Um, at least I became a, a, um, a part of that experience. Yes. How can I say this? Um, it was. It was me without all of those roles, maybe more in a pure form of me, but without me. And it, it's hard to, I mean, it's really hard to explain because you even... Well, we use all those roles to define ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so how can you describe yourself without saying, um, you know, this political party, I'm this religion, I'm this, you know... Uh, gender. Um, you know, I have these children. I'm from this geography. It's difficult exactly. to quantify exactly. who and what you are without those characteristics. Right. And even the way you, at least even, even the way that I come maneuver, when I maneuver through my life, um, you know, I, you know, kind of have a self-referential, you know, kind of first person, you, me, and you, me, and the computer, you know, me, and my desk. Um, and if I want to do something, then I usually you know, can tell myself, you know, I need to go downstairs. I'm hungry. I need to go downstairs. And so I use my thoughts um, um, and my desires to kind of move my life around, um, to, to, you know, to move myself through the world. And in that situation, all of that kind of drops away. And I was felt myself moving and experiencing in ways that weren't thought-directed, more experiential. The borders between the, the, the hard edges between me and the world, me and experience dropped away, you know, because I could feel like kind of a hard edge between me and the world, me and you, me and other others. Um, and those boundaries for me dissolved and you become much more, um, much more connected with reality, much more connected with experience. As at its basic level, existence at its basic level. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. um, that's perfect. I realize how challenging it is. That's why, you know, I was giving you the caveat, you know, to the best of your ability, to the best of your memory, because yeah. being able to quantify that is, is extremely challenging, you know, with the limits of vocabulary. Um, right. And that's actually part, you know, when, you know, in that, that, that schema of psychedelic experiences, that's also another part of it. The idea of not only the other, you know, so the other was the first one, this idea of, you know, me connecting with what I felt to believe other entities, quote unquote. People think of entities, think of aliens and that sort of stuff. But, you know, within, you know, certain experience, like the DMT experience, they do talk about encounters with alien, with alien encounters that people see. I never saw that. But like you said, more of a kind of a telepathic or 
maybe a kind of basic communication level, not necessarily a physical communication level, but um, the, the, the communication with other, what I would call kind of lesser entities, you know, angels, spirit guides, that kind of stuff. But there was also communication, I believe, with the other um, in that kind of a, a kind of a more, um, I don't know, some people might call it God, some people might call it, you know, ultimate reality, some people might call it the Christ consciousness, some people might call it, um, you know, Allah, maybe, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to bring other religious traditions in here because that, you know, starts to kind of create other issues. But, you know, for me, there was also the sense of the word that I used to describe it, the word I used to describe it was it felt like the universe gave me a big hug. You know, there came a point where I just, that if there was something as big as the universe, that being, that other, had enough personality, I felt enough personality to A, give me a big hug, B, to envelop me in love, in, in that being's love, to surround me with a feeling of grace and acceptance of who I was deep down inside, um, that, 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 that grace and acceptance that wasn't self-generated, but that was other-generated, um, that that other somehow surrounded me and and and, um, and and embraced me in ways that were much more powerful than I could have. I mean, I could say I love myself, you know, <laughs> and, and I could say you know I really do like myself, and I'm going to generate this feeling within me. Um, but when, like I said, the only way I can describe it is when the universe gives you the biggest hug in the in the world. Um, that doesn't, and when it doesn't come from yourself, when it comes from outside of you, gosh, it's not, at least for me, it's, it's hard to not attach the sort of theological language to that, you know, especially since I've grown up in a theological environment. For me, I guess I'm going to call that God, or I guess I'm going to call that, you know, Almighty God. I'm going to call that Yahweh, perhaps. Um, um, that's a kind of part of the other when it came to what we is my experience, my second experience, communication, and acceptance of the other that was not me. Well, that's beautifully vulnerable and personal, and I thank you for sharing that. And that's not unusual. I mean, as you know, people people express that time and time again. Exactly. When they've had exactly. those experiences. So that, so that for me, you know, this idea of the other, and we talked about a little bit this idea of unity, you know, the dropping away of all rules. The, the, the loss of boundaries, connection with, you know, kind of maybe primal or maybe base level consciousness, connection with all of this, you know, this idea of unity. On the last one, the experience that I had, I mean, other people have reported me on some of the reports that I've read from other people. For me, there's also kind of a new experience of the self, um, connections with me, connections with emotions. You know, so, um, this I, written one of my experiences, I kind of went back to a childhood experience that I had when my parents had divorced and some of the emotions that, um, you know, that were emotion, very emotional time, not necessarily for me, but kind of seeing myself um, again in a new way as a six-year-old boy when my parents were divorcing and, you know, my mother moving out and, uh, or I guess that, there's a whole lot of behind that story, but at least me and the connection that I had with my mother being physically um, taken away and me not seeing my mother for, you know, regularly for many years, um, and kind of reliving some of those experiences as a, as a six-year-old Jamie, you know? Um, 
So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to connect with the universe and connect with all things and have this very mystical experience and see God and get a hug with the universe. There's also kind of some very deep personal experiences that I um, that I kind of went back into. Emotional experiences, sadness, um, loss, um, and really experienced those as well and, and explored some of those very human personal emotions. Um, not as much for me, but it was there. And other people can sometimes have more of those kind of experiences. So for me, there was also a connection with deep parts of the self. Um, so, I, so for me, as I think about the experience, it really kind of kind of goes in those three categories. And the best I can categorize the you know, category of the other, the unity, and the self is just really kind of helpful for me. Let me put language around it. So, those experiences were they? equally visual as they were emotional did you did you get a an actual a vision of yourself as a child and see that transpiring and were you i don't want to put words in your mouth were you feeling it as a child but also feeling it as a compassionate adult seeing that child interesting yeah so um so I think the perception that people have, some people, um, you know, when they take psychedelics, they, um, you know, they have you know, visual changes. You know, they might, um, um, you know, they might, you know, the whole, yeah, you, you know, the, oh, we saw, you're going to take a psychedelic and you see a bunch of pink elements, you know. And, um, and those are, those would be, I think, more populated as hallucinations. And I never really saw any, I never saw any hallucinations. Um, you know, sometimes there would be some, some, some visual changes, you know, they might, my visual was a little bit more blurry. I was a little bit kind of unsure on my feet. Um, you know, people report, you know, kind of fractal patterns of breathing or moving and stuff. But people do report, you know, kind of full on, you know, seeing hallucinations. Um, but I think those, at least for me, I didn't see any of that. Um, and I think I would, if I were to saw pitch elements, I would have been rather distressing. Um, so it's more of, um, of kind of a, you know, when you close your eyes, it's more of, kind of something that appears within your imagination. But it's not just imaginary; it's also very real. It's 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 imaginary, but as real as anything you're seeing in front of you. Um, like the way you see visions in a dream, you know. Yes. You wake yes. up and you remember those as visual memories. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So this idea of visual memories. So you know when I you know so when I think about that brief snippet of my experience, um, you know, going back to the childhood. Going back my childhood, it was kind of me standing outside. It was just a brief flash, but it was me in my house, um, looking outside. Not necessarily me being Jamie, but me seeing Jamie, me seeing that little boy, you know, and and me seeing that boy in that environment, you know, a very stressful environment, um, and 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 seeing him again in ways, um, you know, from the outside that maybe I had not seen before. Um, so that's really more what it was, rather than me going and kind of reliving that experience. Maybe some people do. I did not, you know, become six-year-old Jamie. I was kind of outside six-year-old Jamie and looking at Jamie as he was experiencing, you know, some very, you know, some very difficult thing when he was a child. Um, and maybe having more compassion for that child. Maybe having more compassion for my mother and the experiences that she was going through, you know, that led to the divorce and not labeling someone as bad, you know, not labeling someone as evil, not labeling someone as being, being you know, the problem. 
but looking at that whole experience a little bit with, with a little bit more of compassion and maybe maybe a little bit more of an adult understanding. You would hope an adult understanding of you know there was a lot going on. Um, that, that little boy, you know, little Jamie was also experiencing that or recognizing that. Um, but no, yeah, I like your idea that it'd be a kind of a dream, but not. But dreams sometimes can be so random. You know, mm-hmm. you have a dream, you're like, where'd that come from? You know, and you forget the dream. Um, or it's just kind of, it's just random. Um, it seems like in the psychedelic experience, where at least for me, you know, there is some randomness, I guess. Um, but, but more meaningful, more meaning associated with that. I think I see between the hallucination and the psych, and the psychedelic experience. Hallucination being kind of random and not meaningful, and the psychedelic experience, um, having that meaning, having some sort of reality, um, being true to me in a certain sense. No, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I think what's culturally referred to as this hallucination that people have, those seem more like dreams. You know, this kind of chaos, you can't control or navigate it. You're meeting your high school principal and you're on a ride at Disneyland together. It's just <laughs> random craziness. And yeah. um, from my own limited experiences and from what people tell me, the psychedelic experience, although may not, although one may not be completely at the helm of the ship, there is a more intentional and thoughtful experience. And you know, you referred to yourself not really experiencing that childhood again, but you said it was more like you just saw the child. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, and you could just seeing yourself as that child in that moment, possibly traumatic experience, that's something you can chew on every day and kind of interpret and, and, you know, integrate, you know, what was going on there. And and it seems like there's a little bit more of a, of a take home and something you can kind of wrestle with over time. Whereas most dreams, at least in my experience, are often fleeting. You, You know, you wake up and you try to hang on to what was happening and you try to understand it and interpret it. But, you know, by the time, you know, the alarm's going off and the kids are waking up and you're trying to make coffee, that dream is, it, it, you know, it's, it's gone. And yeah. like you expressed, there are things that I can remember my psychedelic experience over 20 years ago. And I can still see those pictures. And to this day, I'm still wrestling with them and picking them apart and trying to understand what benefit I can glean from that. And what potential, you know, hazards I might be able to avoid based on that information. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. And, and some of it too, I think, is, um, you know, we, I don't know, as Americans, we want to say, if I do this, what's the benefit? If I do this, what, how is it going to positively impact my life? And I think that's true. I think, you know, with, um, you know, with psychedelics, I think there needs to be that recognition that, um, you know, what are the benefits that maybe come about using these in therapeutic ways? What are the benefits that come about with using these? Um, you know, for, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for treatment, for, for medical treatments. But, um, also in some of the psychedelic experiences, what, maybe we don't, maybe we don't need to, I mean, when you think about, um, some of the very profound spiritual experiences that people have, you know, experiences of, um, you know, of, of sacredness, awe, holiness, um, I mean, these are just words, I'm just trying to make these words up, but it, 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 um, ineffability, um, I mean, sometimes we don't need to do anything with that. Sometimes it's just to say, 
my goodness, I was just, um, 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 I just fell on my, you know, I fell on my knees before, you know, something that was before the universal sacredness of being, um, and I got lost in awe and wonder and enveloped in the love of the universe. Okay, <laughs> that, I don't need to do anything with that, you know, it just, that was just kind of a benefit, you know, that's just, that's just, that's just something that happened and something maybe, you know, I would say maybe to be celebrated. Um, Could you please do a time study on that and quantify your productivity? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, how did that make you, maybe it doesn't have, maybe, I would hope that experience like that would probably have an impact on, you know, how you, if I have that experience, if I have the experience of the sacredness of all things, well, I would hope that that would have an impact on, you know, the amount of trash that I throw out and how many plastic bottles that I use. And if, if I have the experience of the sacredness of all beings, you know, and, and, and the idea that, you know, the spiritual home that all people inhabit, um, well, maybe that should have an impact on how I treat my kids and the words that I use. Um, but, um, so, so I think, I mean, that's a totally different topic, but sometimes, um, and that's and that's why you know experiences like that. I think um, you know when you look at religion and religion over time, there there have been there's been the kind of emotional, um, experiential, transcendent understanding of religion, understanding of religion, you know, along with the doctrinal, along with the stories of the faith, along with the communities, um, you know, along with the communal aspects of faith. That 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 when when those folks were talking about awe and what it's like, like they, you know, the contemporary Christian songs, you know, when they talk about, you know, um, um, dancing at the feet of Jesus, you know, or, 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 um, or, or being in God's presence. Um, well, maybe there's some value into those experiences and realizing that those experiences are a part of our, a part of who we are as individuals and tapping into those, I think, can, you know, can have some, can have some benefit to one's life, but you can't get, I don't think you can get lost there. I think then it kind of comes back into, how do those experiences, even though they were sublime and impeccable and 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 um, and um, and holy and sacred? Again, trying to put words on this. Now what? Now what do those experiences mean? But gosh darn it, it's just kind of nice to know that us humans can have those experiences. You know, at least me. I can't say humans. At least I would think have those experiences. But um, that was definitely not the whole. You know, I don't want anybody to get the, you know, get the idea that it was just, you know, beauty and bliss 24-7, you know. Um, no, there's challenges associated with, the, with those experiences. But um, but there is something about, and not necessarily like um, people like, well, you're just getting high, you know, or, you know, is that what it's all about? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I think with a true beauty and bliss experience, yeah, that cannot be. Those are emotionally, emotionally exhausting, emotionally draining. It's not, you know, like it's not like. And I don't, I don't want to say this disparagingly because, um, you know, people use drugs for many different reasons. Um, but unlike, you know, maybe a substance like cocaine. Um, I never had cocaine before, but you hear people, you know, taking cocaine or taking opioids, you know, to you know, kind of to maybe to numb out pain, um, or to maybe, you know, to kind of um, to kind of get to a place where they don't have problems and that feels good. 
well, I mean, I talk about awe and bliss and wonder and the ineffable, um, but also realizing that that is not something that one wants to experience on a weekly basis or a daily basis. It just is so emotionally, physically draining, which maybe is one of the reasons why psychedelics, at least what they say, are not addictive. You know, when the, when the, when the, when the rats are in the maze and you put the cocaine there, you know, they go bing, 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 they want to hit the cocaine, you know, they hit the psychedelics and they're like, no, not that. Nope, not doing that again. No, I'm good with that stuff. You know, uh, let's go back to the let's go back to the pleasurable stuff. You know, that other stuff that kind of trip me out for a little bit. I don't know if I want to go back to that. You know, it's like more, more like running a marathon instead of uh, you know going to a party. Exactly. You're right. Yes, like exactly. There's and this huge benefit from running the marathon, and you know, you get the you know, the physical benefits, but also the exertion, and you get this, you know, boost of oxytocin, but also, you know, combined with just this extreme uh, fatigue and almost a ethereal a, a head rush by, the, by the, the run and exerting yourself. And to compare that, you know, being on an MTV beach party or something, you know, those are two radically different things. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be overly judgmental in this circumstance about either one of those things. But I think you're, you're trying to quantify the fact that this is not just, in your experience at least, not a joyful roller coaster ride. You know, this was a, this was more of a, um, a challenge that also had some positive aspects. Right. I mean, even in one of my experiences, I could say, as I was laying on the couch, you know, probably the, the precursor experience to one of the most, one of the most like it. so I had, a, I had an experience where um, I just was you know kind of surrounded by um, the most powerful the most powerful something coming from outside the most powerful entity that I could ever experience showing me the most powerful um, extending to me love and grace. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, I believe in God's grace and, you know, I, I love, you know, God's grace is important to me. You know, but when you feel that, at least when I felt that a very powerful experience, an overwhelming experience of grace of the other, you know, of the other afford, you know, accepting me for who I am, you know, and just wrapping me in that grace and love. But to get there, um, I remember just being exhausted, you know, just being at the end of my rope, you know. Just saying, I just can't do this anymore. You know, I just can't go through these experiences anymore. It's just too much. You know, I just, I'm like tired of being in control. You know, I'm just, and then, and it's like once that, once you, you got to get to that, that, you know, that, that let go spot. Once I got to that let go spot, then, you know, grace was given to me. But, but letting go and the, and the, um, Exhaustion associated with that um, was 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 pretty difficult, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not all fun and games, you know. Be careful what you sign up for. You know, as a as a Sam Harris, as I think Sam Harris says, you know that. I mean, I can meditate for twenty years, and maybe I'll have an experience, you know. But you take this substance, and you are guaranteed to have an experience, whether you like it or not, you know, so I mean, let's not romanticize the substances, but let's just say, yeah, there's going to be a guarantee associated with it that something is going to happen. Yeah. Unlike if I, you know, 
sound like, you know, my two hours of prayer or my 20 years of meditation. Yeah, maybe something will. Um, and maybe that's what's going to substitute but there's a guarantee involved in them. You might not always get what you, what you experience, what you want, but something will happen. Right. And there's a corresponding commitment. You know, uh, I can sit down, you know, in the living room on Saturday morning and start trying to, you know, meditate and focus and maybe pray. But, uh, you know, if there's a knock at the door, I can suddenly snap out of that and run to the door and see what the mailman's bringing. But that's not an option, yeah. um, you know, when you're two hours into a psilocybin experience. <laughs> you're, you're, exactly. Yeah, there's a certain level of commitment that... Um, <laughs> That for better or worse can't be can't be broken. Right, right. There's that there's that meme of Gandalf. You know what is you know what has happened cannot be undone. You know it's just it's been it's gonna happen. And maybe that's where some of the anxiety that might come in. You know when, when going into that experience. If I had any anxiety, anxiety it would be that okay once I take this pill, that there's nothing I can do. You know I, I can't. But, you know, once it hits my stomach, it's going to dissolve, and there's no way I can throw it back up or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm now in it for the next six hours. I think maybe that's the anxiety. There's not, you know, an escape, you know, there's not a, there's not an escape hatch or something. I don't like to have escape hatches. No, you know? no emergency button. Exactly. No rip, no rip cord, no. <laughs> no rip cord, no nothing. But maybe, I don't know. Maybe there's a certain benefit to that. You know, um, maybe there's a certain benefit. I mean, what do they call, you know, they, you know, they call people psychonauts, you know, soul sailors, you know, um, and they call it trips. I don't like the word trip. You go and do, you do trip out, you know, but maybe there is some value in that idea of journey. You know, you do, you, know, you do go on a journey, you go a journey to, um, Nothingness. You go into journey into into sacred spaces. You go into journeys in yourself. You go into journeys into other environments. You go into so I think that idea of journey I think is really important. And, you know, maybe I always get anxious before I go on a journey, even if I'm you know going out of town for a day or two and I don't sleep well the night before. So maybe that that language of journey is a good one. You know, that idea of when it comes to psychedelic experience. You're less tripping out, and you're more sailing off into the unknown, you know. And gosh, you know, where have all the where have all the good explorers gone? You know, where have all the good people of God who jump in a boat, you know, in the 1500s and sail off to the new world? You know, we pretty much conquered, you know, right. conquered our physical environment. So maybe the maybe the, the next set of conquerors or the, the next set of explorers would be those who go inward to explore inside. Well, it takes a certain amount of courage, you know, yeah, uh, right. to make commitments. If you didn't just happen stance find yourself there, uh, at some point, most of us end up in front of an altar and we're making a commitment to another human being for the rest of our life. And that is a journey that takes commitment and hope. And when you bring another person into the world, you know, likewise, you're making this commitment to a journey um, that's going to have ups and downs. And so you're right. And, you know, there, to some degree, we, we're at a loss for new frontiers. Um, but I think our, I think our intellect and our passion is constantly driving us to seek those out. I mean, that's why people are now wanting to explore space, wanting to explore the deepest depths of the ocean. Um, I think God gave us to some degree an insatiable appetite 
for the unknown. I think we have to be thoughtful and responsible about how we indulge that desire. But you're right, this may be a, a new area of exploration, and that area may be internal, maybe internal exploration. Yeah, well, psychedelics really, um, you know, I guess uh, it just kind of, and, you know, some people will use, <laughs> I think for me, psychedelics really show us how weird, how weird life is, you know, how weird experience is, just how much we don't know about our interactions with the world, about the universe, about how we experience the, the world, how we experience things. Um, it, it, for better or for worse, even if you go to go into it as a total atheist, I think um, I think I guess I think if I even went into it as a total atheist, I would probably come out to the other end going, "Wow, there is more to this. This 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 experience is really way more weird and way more complex than I would would have experienced than I would have ever thought." You know, maybe that's one of the benefits of it. I think it's humble. Now, that seems to be consistent with, you know, with what I hear when people report on their experiences is even people who, even people whose spiritual walk has not changed post their experience, they do express that they somehow experience, for lack of better words, what they can only say is the divine or something spiritual that exists outside of them, outside of time and space. And outside of our temporal concerns. I don't want to come to any conclusive judgment on these things, but it's hard for me to not see that as a beneficial outcome of a circumstance when a person comes away from it with the feeling that there's something greater beyond us all and there's something beyond us all that unites us all together. And I realize how to the, you know, Western Christian mind, how Fruity, that can sound. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying, I'm trying to be, you know, less rigid with my language and, and try to explore ideas, you know, without, with, with, without, uh, unnecessary conclusions being, being drawn beforehand, you know. Right. Um, yeah. My hope with this project is that we'll, you know, that we'll, we'll gain understanding. You know, um, whatever, whatever, wherever that leads us, you know, we'll know more than we knew to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talked about the length of time that this this journey takes. How did how did it feel, to the best of your memory, to kind of recollect, kind of return to your baseline experience as a man? Um, and and what was that like? I guess as the effects of the you know the chemical wore off, what you know. Where did you find yourself? I guess emotionally, emotional stability, um, your your psychological re- points of reference. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah um, you know, I think some of it is just being kind of exhausted, and that's why they say, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to take some ibuprofen, you got a headache, you know, you take some ibuprofen just because you know it doesn't work to the experiences. I think there's a certain level of just kind of exhaustion, um, you know, just. You know, at least I experienced this idea that I kind of, I kind of felt like the universe just downloaded, you know, a, a bunch of information into my brain, and I was trying to kind of sort it out. Um, so there's a little bit of confusion. Um, I think also there's um, kind of that dip back into kind of consensus consciousness, consensus experience. Um, but at least, in the, at least afterwards, can be kind of challenging, you know. Um, 
kind of back in this rat race and having to deal with, you know, having to deal with politics and people's anger and social media and, you know, um, um, the government and, and, and negativity that surrounds me and people who, you know, are, who I believe are majoring in the minors, you know, um, so I think that for me there was this also this sense that um, um, you know, kind of coming back into coming back into culture um, had some challenges, especially when you when you when you exited from culture and when you exited from you know your your your, your uh, when you when you exited from um, your worries about money and you know making the house payment and I got to get the oil changed in the car and, you know, my friends are kind of on a political rant again and, you know, and, 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 and oh, look what the president is doing today, you know, that sort of stuff. And then you kind of extra exit from that, at least for me, or when I kind of exited from that, at least for me, kind of get back into that. Um, it, it's almost like having, one of the experiences, one of the metaphors I use is that you've got the puzzle, you've got a, if your life is a puzzle and it's all put together, you have a psychological experience and it's kind of like taking that puzzle and flipping it up and the pieces go everywhere in, 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 in a matter of, you know, three to six hours and then you're kind of left to, okay, how am I going to put this back together? You know, I'm going to put all these pieces back together. Um, what have I learned? Um, how do I kind of now construct my, how do, how do I construct myself and my reality given everything that's kind of happened? Um, and so that can be challenging. I, I do find that challenging. Um, and, um, and yeah, but I think that, you know, overall, you could have a positive, I would hope, positive impact on my life. Um, but yeah, so coming out of that, you know, physical, physiologically, you know, stuff kind of works way on your system pretty quickly. Um, but there is that challenge of how to now, you know, I've kind of explored other universes now. What do I, what do I get to eat? You know, what should I order off the menu at a restaurant? You know, when four hours ago I was, you know, Getting a, getting a hug by the universe. So yeah, it wasn't you know it wasn't simply like jumping out of you know um, everything's perfect and I you know um, there was a, I think um, there was some kind of integration anxiety I should say and having to kind of put things back together. I think it's easier over time. I think after the second experience, it's a little bit easier. Um, but still, um, I mean even nowadays it's like well I don't know when hard for me to get. It's hard for me to get worked up over some stuff um, now when, at least for me, I kind of experienced something I think is kind of a bigger picture, you know? It's hard for me to get worked up over, you know, my kid getting a B plus or something, you know, rather than a minus. I don't know. In the grand scheme of things, they're a beautiful soul, and, and and I come to realize they're a beautiful soul, and everybody's a beautiful soul. So why am I going to get worked up over them getting a B plus and maybe you know not getting into Harvard or something? It's just I don't know. I, I think there's a certain sense of and you got to be careful. At least I have to be careful. You know, those things are important to people. You know, politics are important to people. Arguing about money is important to people. You know, so you don't want to poo-poo everything and just say, well, you know, I've had this big psychedelic experience and I'm just so much above all that. Um, but you've got to kind of walk that balance between not caring, but also caring, being up in the world, but being not of the world. You know, I think someone said that. Maybe a false fall. I think I remember a guy saying that. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's some, it's having this experience.
kind of now figuring out, okay, what now? And how am I going to exist in this world, you know, um, given the experiences that I've had? So, yeah, it's not always easy. Well, it's for me. Yeah. You know, most people who, who have been asked about their experience, you know, with psychedelics, you know, rank it as one of the top five experiences of their life. I can only assume that's because of what you just very artistically explained there, that sometimes when you're able to have an experience where you're detached from the momentary cares of life, you can see a greater horizon. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's maybe where people come, come to that conclusion that, um, that it's one of the greatest experiences of their life because it gave them a vision greater than the trials of day to day living. And I would, you know, that's something that's one of the, you know, one of the, when you talk about, you know, being one of the top experiences, I mean, what, I think for the first probably year or two, year and a half afterwards, I would, you would have asked me, you know, up to a year afterwards, I would have said it was the most single important experience in my life. Um, and now a couple of years later, um, I would say it is, um, one of the top five experiences in my life. Why? Well, because it was one experience that has helped me, I think, better appreciate the other top experiences in my life, you know, getting married, having kids, you know, the death of my father, um, you know, the relationship that I had with my mother, um, you know, though, well, you know, seeing my mother, um, it, it, it has helped kind of put those other experiences into, into at least for me, it's a, it's a, a, a better context. And so it's not that, that, it's not that it's any less of an important experience to me, but but yes, having spiritual experiences are important. But how do I would call spiritual experiences? Like uh, this is a very profound experience. But how now has it really kind of permeated in how I view you know, my wife and my kids and, and, and my relationship with my parents? You know, that's what it's about. Um, so I don't want to mean it by saying it's not the top experience, but it seems to have elevated these other experiences as well and kind of brought them all together. Um, and that's only something I think within the last maybe six months I've really I've kind of had a shift on that. You know, again, catch me, catch me a year ago, I would have said, yep, yeah, number one experience, top experience, blah, 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 it's the best thing. Um, but now it is a good, it's an important experience because of the light that it shed on the other important relationships in my life. You know, and I think that's, I think that's, you know, um, Houston Smith talked about, um, you know, do, do spiritual experiences lead to spiritual lives? You know, um, do these, do these very deep experiences, you know, um, do they, do these transformative experiences also lead to transformative lives? Um, and I think, you know, sometimes the issue is still up for debate when it comes to that. You know, people have these multiple experiences and they're still, you know, jerks to people around them. Um, but there still is you know, the need to chop wood and fetch water. You know, um, there still is a need to help your kids with schoolwork. You know, there still is a need to be attentive to one's spouse when they're going through a difficult time. You know, there still is a need to, um, you know, uh, um, um, pay your taxes, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, so the spiritual experiences are great, but how do they positively impact the chopping wood and the fetching water in life, which we all need to do? We are not all doing that. Yeah, uh, we can't be absolved of all our human responsibilities just because we had an enlightening spiritual experience. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. 
know, God's given us a task here. Um, and, you know, it, that's our daily job, you know, to go about those duties of, of doing the, the, the mundane, but, but beautiful things of life, you know, um, changing diapers yeah. and changing oil and, uh, you know, going to the grocery store. And, uh, making and, and, and you mentioned it, and you mentioned it no, when you talked about, um, when you talked about this idea of, of your thinking maybe not being as rigid, you know, um, and that's one of the things that some people report after having after having a very high dose of high dose psychedelic experiences. I mean, that their thinking became less rigid. Um, that they that the ideas of black and white in the world, you know, didn't those kind of drop away? Certainly didn't for me. You know, um, you know, if I had any you know black and white ideas, those are pretty much were blown away. You know, by by psychedelics, which could be which could be um, very uh, anxious, uh, anxious forms of those people who are in religion who. Thrive off black and white, in and out, you know, heaven hell. Um, but I like when you talked about this idea of your thinking um, became less rigid, if you want to know what you're saying. Um, and I mean, how positive is that? I mean, I think it's positive, you know, this idea that a psychedelic experience could cause maybe you to not believe that, that your views and your view of reality is the only one. I mean, I think that would be. I would, I would think, and I would hope that that would have an interaction, that that would have an impact on the way you treat other people, the way you treat other people who come, who come from different religions, who come from different political persuasions, who come from, you know, or a different gender than you. I would hope that those would have positive impacts, and I think those would also be this idea of what does it mean to live in the world, chop wood, fresh water, mm-hmm. you know, integrate those experiences, and then being positive in someone's life. You know. Well, it gave me the ability to be. Um... I think for the better, less in the immediate circumstance and look at things in a more holistic and comprehensive way. So when, when the religious leaders bring this unfaithful woman to Jesus and declare her crimes, you know, he could have, he could have addressed her crime and said, okay, you guys, you know, you're right on Tuesday. She did this and we're going to, you know, ascribe a certain disciplinary action to her and so on and so forth. But he didn't. He took a more comprehensive, thoughtful understanding of the entire situation. And I think he arrived at a more important conclusion. You know, it's not to say that what he wasn't absolving her of any wrongdoing. He was just looking at a much bigger picture. You know, and and so you said something earlier about how the psychedelic experiences made those more mundane human day-to-day experiences less um, less aggravating or less tumultuous. When you're you know when you're raising a toddler and you're constantly chasing them around and trying you know get their hands out of the light socket and you know afraid they're going to eat something dangerous, and your parents or your grandparents are sitting over in the corner just smiling, you know watching you pull your hair out. And they're like, it's not that big a deal. But to you, it is such a big deal. Yeah. They have an enlightened perspective. They're seeing a bigger picture. you know. And so they're not that upset when the child takes a toy or dumps out their apple juice. You know, because they have they have a, a larger time horizon they're doing that. Yeah. And I think, at least my own personal experience, I think I think life experience can teach you that over time. But I think a psychedelic experience can also 
give you a slightly greater time and context horizon. So those temporal things are slightly less aggravating and feel slightly less immediate. But, you know, we, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I feel like we could go on forever. But before we conclude, you know, we, I feel like we've given an overall positive view of psychedelics. And I want, I want to be completely just and rational. In, in your opinion, what are, if there are any, potential downsides that you might entertain uh, with psychedelics, both clinical and people using them in a recreational capacity? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Are there, are there, I know you or myself are not in any way licensed, you know, psychological practitioners, but, you know, as the layman in that regard, can you see potential hazards or hurdles for people that, you know, we don't want to give away a, ro- a rose-colored glasses view of all this. You know, these are, yeah. you know, these are, in, are, are serious um, compounds, and they need not be flippantly consumed, I don't believe. Right, yeah, exactly. They're very, yeah, you said, um, very serious, very powerful substances. So we're dealing with something um, that is... That can have a have an impact on you know obviously one's ideas and one's thought and one's almost you know mental functioning um, and I think I do not but in and sometimes when people go to the psycho experience you know you probably you know see people they just they kind of you know the psycho everybody's got to do it you know they say everybody's got to do it everybody you know you need to put it in the water you know and if everybody just takes a psychedelic then the world will be all the world will get together. We can get together and take a psychedelic and the world be a better place. No, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I just, I don't think that some people should just not do this. <laughs> some people just, you know, whether it's, whether it's some emotional issues or whether it's, you know, some mental illness that they have in their family, um, you know, maybe some personal things that they're dealing with that just do not mean, they should just, in their mental health, they should just not need to be doing this. Um, so yes, this is not for everyone. Um, and, and I, like I said, I don't believe that, that, um, that we need to start hand toasting the water with, with psychedelics. Um, you know, difficult, difficult experiences are real and they can happen. Um, and the more individuals, you know, take these, the more, um, you know, the, the more chance there is to have a difficult experience. Some people call them bad trips. Um, that a difficult experience, you know, what I've read is difficult to call it difficult for a reason. Um, so, uh, so, so, so it's not like you said. Everything you take it, and you see God. You know, well, sometimes people take these substances and they find depths of hell, you know, um, that are that are locked within themselves. Um, so it's so it's not all it's not all fun and games. Um, I think um, integrating is important. Integrate, integrate, integrate. Um, these are not meant to be things that do. Um, yeah, and the body kind of builds a tolerance. Um, you know. For, what I read, you know, if you take a psychedelic, you know, recreationally, recreationally, if you take one dose, you can't take that same dose in three or four days, you know, because of the body built up the tolerance. So they're just really not meant to be kind of taken on a regular basis, taken like aspirin. Um, so there's, there's this idea of integrating experiences. You're talking about 20 years, you've about, you know, an experience that you, that, that you had. Um, also, I think, you know, when it comes to psychedelics, and there's, uh, there's some philosophical questions, I think, that I have. 
you know, again, I, I value my experiences that I had. I would, you know, call them very spiritual, very meaningful, um, very life-impacting, positive. Um, I even heard religious terms around them. But um, I think we have to be careful of the conclusions that we reach from psychedelic experiences. Um, I think it's good to be a skeptic in some of these experiences. You know, take what works and ditch the rest. Um, perhaps I needed the universe to give me a hug that day. You know, perhaps I just needed that. But I, I can't develop a, I can't now go and develop a comprehensive theology of universal hugging or start the, you know, the first church of universal hugging because of what I experienced. I just, you know, I needed it that day. I got it. And, and I, I just, I can't make, you know, proclamations about the nature of the universe or God uh, for anybody else. You know, I can't start a religion based on that, based on the first. So I think going to be careful with conclusions. And just because I think people experience something on a, on a trip doesn't mean it's actually true. Um, I can't say that reincarnation exists um, because I didn't have an experience of reincarnation. And, and I can't say that reincarnation doesn't exist. You know, just, well, I didn't have it in my experience and you had it in yours, but therefore, uh, that's not the truth. It must be true. Um, I think, um, I think um, we'll be careful of, of projecting what happens there on you know, kind of my own personal theology is important. Um, and I also think, you know, after psychedelic experiences that I had, I didn't make any major decisions. Not like I had a psychedelic experience and two days later, told my, you know, went and, went and you know, quit my job and moved to India, like you said. Um, but part of it is just, oh, all right, time to relax. Let's integrate. Let's think about it. Let's write when you're writing, journaling. Those are the important things. Um, and, and not making any major decisions um, after my psychedelic experiences, I think that was important. So, um, they, they, well, I think it can be used for personal growth, um, you know, for a few uses. I think to make major life decisions need to be done on a consultation with, um, you know, if, you're, if someone is doing it within a, within a therapeutic setting, you know, a legal therapeutic setting, talking with a counselor um, or study, you know, or study leader. Yeah, and I'm hesitant to, you know, encourage anyone. I, I kind of feel like, you know, I don't want to absolve us of, of giving people good counsel and, and taking action in certain, you know, people's negative situations. But I, I think that if this experience is right for you, I, I think that 
that you'll find your way there. You know, and I don't, I don't feel the need to compel people or evangelize people about this. Um, you know, I, th- I think God leads us where He needs us, and 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 some of us have a different road to walk. And it takes it takes wisdom to discern all that, and none of us will do it perfectly. And especially, you know, the legal environment that we're in. I mean, even us talking about people doing psychedelics right now, um, even if we were to have big data, um, you, know, you and I, if we were to sit there and say, yeah, everybody should do this, I mean, technically, people could lose their jobs. People could go to prison, you know, for us saying, go and do this. So that's also another, for me, it's also another, another thing that when it comes to uh, these using these substances that there are very real legal ramifications that I cannot have good conscience telling anybody, you know, you need to go and, you know, find someone and get the magic mushrooms and do them um, because I would not want to be responsible for someone losing their livelihood, maybe even going to jail, um, you know, or going to prison because of this. It's just right now the environment in the United States is just not worth it. So I, I obviously I can't advocate that legally. Absolutely. And we not do so. Absolutely. I mean, I think it uh, it exceeds the parameters of our conversation today. But in the future, I do wish to discuss the legal application in in, in regards to these things and the spiritual nature. You know, um, and I think, and again, I don't want to delve into this with you today. I think I've exhausted your your uh, your your hospitality for the day. But we will need to also um, engage and entertain. Because to some degree, the topic of sin, you know, um, there, there's a topic that a lot of people in the Christian world would view these things as inherently sinful. And we'll have to wrestle with that and deal with that yeah. in the future. And, and I'm not, um, I'm completely comfortable discussing that. And I have no preconceived notions. You know, I'm willing to go where, where, uh, where God takes us in that regard. Um, yeah, sounds good. Well, James, it's been fantastic. Um, having you on the show. It's been great meeting you and discussing these things with you. I, I appreciate your, um, your transparency and your, uh, your willingness to discuss your experiences. And I'm really looking forward to John Hopkins releasing, publishing the results of that study. And, um, and if there's anything you have to leave us with today, any, any, any books or content or resources that you would, you would leave people with or any, contact info that you would like to uh, relay to people who might be interested in, in advancing their um, understanding of this or, or any or any Christian aspect of life that you might want to leave anyone with. Yeah, I mean, if I, I'm, I'm on Twitter, so people search my name on Twitter. My handle is at jcvictory um, on Twitter, at jcvictory. That's probably the best place to get a hold of me. I think I also have my real name in my bio, so if you know look up James Lindbergh, I'm probably there. That's probably where people can, can reach me. Um, yeah, um, and uh, and yeah, I think uh, um, uh, as far as books, there's so many different books out there. There's you know a number of books about religion and psychedelics already. Um, that's one of the reasons why I haven't written a book because there's just there's there's there the topic is really you know it's been covered in the past. And there are people who are really doing some good work in this area already, and I'm more interested in reading what they have to say and learning from them rather than, you know, rather than my own book. But, uh, but yeah, right now, um, this sacred knowledge by uh, Bill Richardson is also is, is, a, is, a, is a good book. Um, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman um, is also a good person. He's, uh, he's Jewish, um, but he also has a good podcast and book that's out as well. 
um, this kind of comes at it from a Jewish angle. Um, so, uh, so Dr. Rick Strassman, I found value in that along with Bill Richards and Sacred Knowledge, um, which is uh, which is his book. They kind of coming from different views, um, and sometimes there's some contention between those two views. Um, but I think it's good to, to see uh, different individual um, um, thinking and writing in this area. So that's some. So those are really two good authors that I've noticed, both from a from a religious tradition, spiritual tradition. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to future conversation. Yeah, it's been good to hear your experiences and to uh, also to uh, hear your thoughts about these as well. It's good, good conversation. Pastor James Lindberg, everyone, can't wait to to speak again. So I uh, wish you grace and peace, sir. So that's episode three of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. I would like to extend a hearty thank you to Pastor James Lindbergh for being present and candid for this interview, and I look forward to speaking to him again soon. Please join me in the next episode when we will speak to another Christian about their thoughts or experience on the topic of psychedelics. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you.